First Peter chapter 5. There are any teens here that weren't at the youth meeting last night? Make sure you pick up your summer study through Philippians. We'll be using that Swedish method that we've learned. And you have the divisions for every uh, day of the week there for you to be reading. Uh, those are on the table or the countertop out there in the lobby, young people. Parents, if you want to take a look and see what they're studying, uh, have at it. Uh, but certainly, young people, make sure you pick up your booklet. We've come to our final study in this letter from Peter to the church. 21 sermons have called us to an understanding of living as pilgrims in a world that at times may be hostile to our faith or to the practice of it. We sang this morning of this pilgrimage and its confidence. We sang that he shelters us under his wings. Yes, he so gently sustains us. Though we may be exiles and pilgrims in this world, we are sustained by grace. We sang that we will stand as children of the promise, believing that God has set his love on us and has called us to our eternal home. The inheritance is kept there for us. So we will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Newton gave us that familiar text, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Those are the words of a pilgrim. And on this pilgrim journey, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. In the fury of the storm, while the tempest rages on, through those floods of unbelief, and even as we face the wave of death. We'll sing once more at the conclusion a, a pilgrim anthem that we learned in our singspiration a few months back, a song called Almost Home, Almost Home. That's our hope as pilgrims, a momentary life met with an eternal glory. Today we study Peter's concluding comments. They're not just polite words of farewell or greeting, but they're words that actually summarize the letter and give us hope for obeying it. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Our theme for today is at the end of verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Know what grace is, the this. This is the true grace of God. So know what this grace is as it's unfolded in this letter, and then stand firm in it. We remember that this paragraph of conclusion summarizes the letter. He's saying this is the grace of God and gives us the hope for obeying it. Something in these concluding words helps us understand what he means when he says, stand firm in it. So let's look first at what this true grace is, and then we'll look at how we can stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God, Peter writes. This letter, this explanation of your pilgrimage, this call to follow Jesus, even in the face of suffering, it is all of grace. So looking back over the letter, we see this story of grace being written. 
And so just briefly, we need to kind of recap the entire epistle. And we'll do it with various chapters in this story of grace. The first chapter would be the mercy of God. In chapter 1, the very introduction reminds us of God's mercy at work. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. This true grace of God, as Peter summarizes it, begins at the beginning. Not you repenting and believing, but it begins before that, when God was merciful to you. We see it again in chapter 2 and verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter begins his story of grace with the mercy of God, but he unfolds that grace in the next chapter of his story. That chapter we would entitle a sufficient savior. In chapter 1 and verse 18, we learned that We were ransomed from the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers. And that ransom wasn't paid with perishable things like silver and gold. No, it had to be something of transcendent value. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter 2 and verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chapter 2 and verse 24, speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Chapter 3 and verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the story of a rescue, of a Savior. This is the true grace of God. You've been ransomed at a price. And that price having been paid by God's Spirit, you received the new birth. The new birth. God in his mercy has caused us to be born again. New life. Yes, you received life from your parents and you were birthed into this world as a physical being, but you were dead in sin, the Bible tells us, and needed to be made alive. Ephesians 2 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God in his mercy made alive. That's Peter's story. Remember, he's telling us the true grace of God. So we shouldn't be surprised that Peter's unfolding of that grace sounds a lot like what we read in the rest of the scriptures. The new birth. And so Jesus stood there with that wise, scholarly Nicodemus and had to bring him back to the beginning And the beginning wasn't Nicodemus' knowledge. The beginning was the Spirit of God granting life. It's the new birth. Because of that new birth, we have another chapter, a sure inheritance. Verse 4, we've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's like the reading of the will and it says there's this, there's this massive diamond that's been in the family for generations and it's at the safety deposit box kept at the bank. It's safe there and it's yours. And the will says you can come and get it and make it your own. So it is with this inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. It's kept for us. In other words, it's certain It's undiminished, it's unfailing and unfading. That inheritance is sure in heaven, and verse 5 reminds us, and you are sure to make it there. Not only is the inheritance kept in heaven, but you are guarded by God's power through your faith for the fullness of that salvation that will be revealed in the last time. 
That's a sure inheritance. And this is the true grace of God. But there's a chapter in this story of grace that we'd be happy if it was just left out. It's a chapter Peter would entitle the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. But the way Peter describes the testing, it is indeed a grace of God because it is revealing to you the certainty of your faith when anchored to Christ. Verse 6 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice. So whatever he's about to say is something good. It's the full story of the true grace of God to you. Something good, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, skip down, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know when we experience testing and trial and opposition, it doesn't feel good. And I'm not saying that when you get the diagnosis of a disease or you lose your job or you experience rejection from family because of your faith, that that in and of itself is great and joyful. But when we step back and we realize that those things are going to reveal the tested genuineness of our faith then we realize they were all of grace. That wasn't, oh, there's grace that God gives when things are great, and then grace is cut off and we experience bad things. No, Peter is saying even the testing of your faith is designed to reveal that you don't stand alone on your two feet. You're resting in Jesus Christ. And your hope is not, I'll beat cancer though we'll all fight and try to do that should we be diagnosed with it. The hope is, I'm anchored in Christ, so come what may, that faith will endure to the end. We are guarded by our faith for that salvation to be revealed in the end. So that even the testing of our faith is part of the story of God's grace to us. There's a chapter we'd call a call to holiness. In trying to understand what Peter means by this is the true grace of God, we look back and we cannot miss in this letter to pilgrims the call to holiness. Chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But the contrast is, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it's written, be holy for I am holy. In chapter 2 and verse 5, we are called a holy priesthood. Verse 9, we are called a holy nation. The rest of chapter 2 unfolds how we live differently as citizens of our nation how we live differently as servants of our bosses or masters, how spouses live differently because they're called to holiness, how we live differently among the church as brothers and sisters in Christ than worldly people live with each other because we are called to holiness. Christ has accomplished our great salvation and we're told in chapter 2 verse 24 That his sacrifice was so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do that this week. It's a simple application. We read the verse and we realize, okay, I need to die to sin this week and live to righteousness. When temptation comes, act as if you are a corpse. You're dead to even considering that. Why? Because you are so wholly given to righteousness. A call to holiness makes up this story of true grace. As a pilgrim, you have marching orders. You've been given your assignment. Press on toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Another chapter would be a testimony of faith. Now, previous chapter was the testing 
of your faith. But now that that faith has been tested and proved to be genuine, there should also be the expression of that faith in a public way. Remember, we're pilgrims. That's what this letter is about. And Peter has summarized pilgrim instruction as the true grace of God. And we're trying to figure out what does he mean when he says the true grace of God? And part of his meaning is that the grace of God surrounds our public witness to what Christ has done for us. Which means somehow we must need grace to be bold in our witness. Which means at times we don't feel like it's the right time to say something. Or I don't, I don't want to impose or I don't want to prolong this conversation. And we come up with all kinds of reasons for not proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But this is the true grace of God. That if you've been called out of darkness into light, you're making that known. He says as much in chapter 3, in verse 15, in our hearts we honor Christ the Lord as holy and we're ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Oh man, you're ready. You're you're gentle and you're respectful there. You're engaging them. Some of you men gathered this week and, and heard that question. We talked about it the Sunday before. Hey, whatever issue's on the table, Roe v. Wade's big in the topics of conversation right now. Still a lot of gender conversations Plenty of other stuff about ethics and just war and everything going on in our world. As a Christian, be ready to engage. Defend what you believe the Bible says about the God who reigns over all these things and has given us a map to navigate them. Be ready to talk to anyone and give them a reason for the hope that is in you. It's a testimony of faith. This is the true grace of God that you proclaim, that you testify to what God has done in your life and what his word says he can do in the lives of those who come to him. We press on and see that Peter would give us a chapter regarding times of suffering. Suffering. He's already addressed somewhat the purpose of that suffering in chapter 1. That'd be the testing of our faith. But that comes in the form of this hostility, of the slander, of even persecution. And yet we were told there in chapter 1 to rejoice in the temporary nature of these trials. In chapter 3 and verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 4 and verse 19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There will be times of suffering. But Peter says, this is the true grace of God. That grace that brought us safe this far will lead us home. The story of grace is not without the chapters on suffering. Our our favorite passages of Scripture often come to the light because of a backdrop of pain and suffering and brokenness. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack or want. Why do we need to hear that? Because so much of life makes us feel like we're losing, we're missing something. And yet the reality is, no, with Christ, I won't lack anything. And so even though I'm in the presence of my enemies, it's like I'm feasting at a table with friends because of the peace that passes the understanding of what's going on. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, even though there will be the chapters of the valley of the shadow of death. Times of suffering. Peter has not shied away from suffering in this letter. 
Quite the contrary. He, he almost rebukes us for thinking that we won't encounter suffering. Brothers, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which will come upon you, he says. Times of suffering certainly are part of the story of grace. And may, even better than blessings and good times, bring grace to the forefront of our minds. Finally, there's a chapter on the hope of glory. Equal to Peter's emphasis on suffering is his emphasis on glory. And at times it has set us back a little because we're pretty much conditioned and rightly so to always link glory to God, glory to Jesus Christ. And yet we began this study of glory back in chapter 1 where we read in verse 7 that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we looked at how Peter structured that, we realized that that praise and honor and glory is our reward that is awaiting us. And this laid the foundation for the principle all through the scriptures that suffering leads to glory. And we know this from the prime example of Jesus himself in chapter 2, who suffered, it said, but was exalted. It led to his glorification. And if we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his glory. So we need not be afraid of language that says we will have glory and honor and reward because it's built on a foundation that says It's not purely my suffering, therefore it's not purely my glory. It's suffering tied to Christ, it's glory tied to Christ. The great great abundant joy here is that Jesus is sharing this with us. He's saying, come, be welcomed into my glory. Partake of it, let it... Let it surround you. Let it be the atmosphere of heaven. This is the point of there will be no need for a sun in heaven because Jesus is the light. He will be the atmosphere in which we exist. But make no mistake, we will exist in glory. Shared glory. Glory not our own, but glory given us. And so we, we can't miss the hope of glory especially if you buy into completely this idea that you are an exile and a pilgrim, you will long to read again and again a chapter about glory. You just don't have to stand at many deathbeds before you start longing for that chapter on glory. Read that one again. You don't have to see many kids at St. Jude's with their swollen bodies and bald heads, to long for the chapter on glory. Peter says, listen, for a time, this life may be hard. Paul says, it's momentary affliction, but it is met with the eternal weight of glory. So take heart, pilgrim. Press on. Glory awaits. And Peter makes sure that we don't miss it. Chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter writes that he is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Glory awaits. Glory awaits. We remind ourselves of this because suffering exists. Suffering exists. We have that down. We know it does. Suffering exists. So now by faith, we are kept and guarded for that day when glory is revealed. We believe glory exists as well. Right now, we have to hold on to them both. One day, 
We're going to drop the suffering. And we'll just live in glory. So that is a summary, at least in part, of what Peter says in these concluding words. It's the final scratchings of the pen. And he says, this is the true grace of God. It's all of these things that Peter has written about to help us understand what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in a hostile world, all the while steadied by grace. This is the true grace of God. Now, he says, stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And it begs the question, are you standing in the grace of God? You see, Peter, by his letter, really defines two groups of people. On one hand, there are those who are the pilgrims. Peter calls them the elect exiles, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession, those who have received mercy, those who have been healed by Christ's wounds. And then there are those in the other group, only two, remember, pilgrims and what he called Gentiles, those outside the faith, those who are living, he says, in sensuality, in passions, in drunkenness, and lawless idolatry. So Peter is saying, my friends, this is the true grace of God, that you are numbered among the former and not the latter. Because we all know those who have given themselves to the parties and the drunkenness and the the lawlessness. There is no moral binding on them, no absolute. So they can say it is not only the right to abort a child, but it it is an absolute necessity. And it's something to be celebrated. So they call evil good, and they call good evil. That's the essence of lawlessness. They have abandoned any standard of truth, any binding morality. Peter says, if you're not living that way, but you're following Jesus and living as an exile then you understand. Somehow you got out of this group and into this one. This is the true grace of God. That you aren't marching and shouting and demanding that life in the womb be terminated. I don't know of anyone in the room who would do that. This is the true grace of God. That you're not living for sensuality and the passions of your own flesh, but you actually give thought to what the God of heaven wants from you. That's the true grace of God. So you see, it's not that hard to figure out what Peter means when he says, this is the true grace of God. It's that you're a pilgrim trying to make it home to your Lord and Master Jesus Christ. You're no longer the enemy of God. And so this, indeed, is his true grace. Now we come to the specific words of our final paragraph. What is it in these final three verses that gives us some indication of how we can stand firm in this story of grace? Twenty weeks, we've studied the letter. We've kind of learned something about this pilgrim journey. What could he possibly say in three closing verses that motivates us to stand firm in this letter's truth? Well, I'm going to answer the question by saying that we stand firm in the true grace of God by the grace of God. But how does that grace unfold in these last verses? Notice five gifts of grace in this closing Paragraph from Peter. We stand firm in the true grace of God with the grace of faithful brothers. Faithful brothers. 
Sylvanus, suppose you could say Sylvanus, you would know him better as just Silas uh, from the missionary journeys with Paul. Just a longer Latinized form of the name. But Silas, familiar name, especially in the book of Acts, traveled with Paul and now seems to be ministering with Peter, uh, is mentioned here as as a faithful brother. And then Peter goes on to say, Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So now he's including the church elsewhere. Some say actually Babylon, although it appears there was very little left of that city as uh, in the days he was writing. Some say he's writing from Rome. Maybe this was a mystical you know, title for Rome as a persecutor of God's people as Babylon did. Others would say it's the the paganization of Israel and their abandonment of truth. The point is, he's speaking about the church, the the elect ones, and that she referenced to the bride, the body of Christ. He's addressed Silas as a faithful brother. He's included the church in other places around the world. And then he also says, Greetings from Mark, my son. And this seems to be Mark, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, also known as John Mark. Him, too, we read of in the book of Acts. He's the one who turned back when uh, Paul and Barnabas were first traveling, and Paul said, I'm not doing that again. I'm not taking him. Barnabas said, no, let's take him. He's a good guy. And Paul said, forget it. Go on your own journeys, but I'm not taking him. And there was strong contention, and they parted ways. Years later, we see Paul writing, send me John Mark. He's valuable to me in the ministry. So John Mark probably grew up a little bit, and Paul maybe mellowed a little bit, but in the end, all is well. And here's John Mark, another faithful brother included in this greeting and closing of this letter. The point is, You need God's people. Faithful brothers are a grace of God to you to stand firm in the true grace of God. You're a pilgrim, but you're not alone, the Bible says. And so at the end of this letter about pilgrimage, in the very closing verses where his point is, this is God's true grace, stand firm in it, and he gives most of the words in this to other Christians. Of everything that he could have included about how you stand firm, the bulk of his time is given to other Christians who can help you stand in the grace you're supposed to stand in. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Those aren't just narrative details. They're reminding us at the end of hearing, you're a pilgrim, you're a pilgrim, you're an exile. You got to keep pressing on. Now we're reminded, but you're not alone. Look who's standing next to you on one side and on the other. and, And do this together with faithful brothers and sisters. Pursue and receive the help that comes from the church. Not the corporation, the church, not the benevolence fund of the church, not the programs that may be helpful as the church, but from the people who are the church. You need them. Lean on them for help in your marriage. Lean on them for help in your parenting. Lean on them for those ethics questions in the workplace. That's why God has given them to you, for our common good. So in this letter about pilgrimage, remember when you get to the end and you hear, stand firm, the loudest reminder is, you do this together. Stand firm in the true grace of God with the grace of faithful brothers and with the grace of divine revelation. Peter says, I have written briefly to you. Peter is going to remind us in his next letter that 
No prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. But instead, he says, it was not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the doctrine of inspiration. We use that word because it's in First or Second Timothy chapter 3, where it says in some translations, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other translations may have a more literal translation there, and it may say all scripture is God-breathed. And so on the cold morning when you go out and breathe and you see your breath, you realize, oh, there's something coming out there. And so it is with God's word. It was breathed out of him. It's from his essence. Peter is saying, I have written to you. But we know that's not just Peter's ideas. And I might argue with Peter a little. I'll take it or leave it. No. Peter is writing as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So that we have God's word to us which reminds us that in our pilgrim journey, we are helped because something was written to us to tell us how to make it through this journey. Peter says, I've written to you, and then he uses two words, exhorting and testifying or declaring. Exhorting is the great word, paraclete, word for the Holy Spirit in John 14. We often are reminded of that. So that work of the Holy Spirit is this work of exhortation. And there are plenty of commands in this letter. This is how you must live as a pilgrim. Exhortation. But Peter says, I've also written to you declaring, and it's the word for martyrdom or testifying. Because so much of what Peter was writing came right out of his personal experience. When he tells you not to be ashamed of your Lord and Savior, he remembered his betrayal. When he says, clothe yourself in humility and serve, he remembers Jesus clothing himself with a towel and washing his feet. When he says, be sober and watchful, he remembers Jesus' words, could you not watch and pray one hour? Sleep on now. Take your rest. Peter is speaking from experience. He is testifying to what is true and right about this pilgrim journey. We have God's words to us to help us navigate our pilgrimage. So stand firm in the grace of God with the help of grace that looks like faithful brothers and with the grace of divine revelation. You have the answers. Now just apply them to your questions. Number three, the grace of God's love. He speaks of other churches as likewise chosen. Fellow elect is the Greek word. Likewise chosen. Remember he started this letter as you who are the elect exiles. What does that mean? Well, it's not quite as stark as Babylon on their third attack of Jerusalem in the course of 15 years, finally breaking down the walls of Jerusalem and taking captives, and only the select few were led back to Babylon. Elect, they were. Men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Men like Ezekiel. Uh, They were taken in the waves of captivity. They were chosen because they were young, they were fit, they were smart guys perhaps. They were going to be made the captives of Babylon. Peter's reminding us that we too were chosen to be exiles, but in a different way. This was the loving favor of God displayed to us. And because God's love is set on us, that may also mean the world's hatred is set on us. So we're elect, loved, but we're exiles, hated. And now he says this, the the fellow elect, the likewise chosen are all over the globe. And they too are on their pilgrimage. 
But the pilgrimage is made a little more bearable, knowing that the only reason the world hates me is because God set his love on me. And so every act of hostility is supposed to be a billboard of you're loved by God. You were set apart by God for his purpose, and the world doesn't like that, so it doesn't like you. And there is a grace here in just thinking of being loved by God. And it empowers us to stand firm in this pilgrimage. We can do this. How? By remembering that we're loved by God. And it's interesting that God's choice to love us should be reflected in our choice to love one another. Greet one another with the kiss of love. I'm going to ask Clark and Dennis to take care of that in the lobby after church. I'll shake hands here in the front, but the kiss of love, that's going to be out the back doors, right? Why don't we do that? Well, I would submit to you we do. We do obey. What, what Peter is saying is the love that God has set on you should be displayed to his people. Basically, do what you would do to family. So you might give them a hug. You might kiss them on the cheek in some cultures. Or you might not kiss like we think, puckering up with your lips, but just touching your cheek on either side. You might shake hands or more than a hand, you might grab arms in some culture. There's all these expressions that fulfill obedience to this command, which is ultimately make your love outwardly visible, tangible. People should hear that you love them and they should feel it. Now, I know some of you are like, don't, no, don't be touching me. I, I like my space. Well, you do, but you probably need to feel it a little bit as well as just hear it. God has designed us uniquely, and that physical touch communicates something. So, whether it's Jesus laying his hands on the children, communicating what he said with his mouth, suffer the little children to come, but he expressed that in a tangible way. That's what the text is saying. You are loved by God. Was that tangible? Could you see something physically? Romans 5 says that love was demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I remember some of the criticisms of some of the depictions of the suffering of Christ in film or picture, artwork. And oftentimes they would say, well, it's gratuitous violence. It's, it's showing too much. And I would say, I think Isaiah would differ. Isaiah said he was so marred, he was unrecognizable. So when I can recognize the actor playing Jesus with all his blood and scars, I'm thinking, they didn't do a good enough job. They didn't communicate tangibly enough what love really looked like. So if Jesus' love is communicated visibly and tangibly, if that love has been set on you, then how will you show love to someone this week? It might cost you a little bit, but greet one another with some expression of love. There's the grace of obvious hostility. Paul, Peter writes... I have written, and we ask, what has he written about? Well, he's written about being a pilgrim, an exile. He says, you're hearing from the church in Babylon, and that very idea calls to mind opposition with God's agenda. And then he says, stand firm in this true grace of God. Why? Because the pressure is to compromise. We heard it back in chapter 4. The Gentiles, living the way they live, in verse 4 it says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. They're constantly saying, what's the big deal? Come on, just a little, just come on. And Peter is saying, no, stand firm. We're looking at opposing ideas, opposing loves, opposing values, opposing empires. Opposing lords. And here's the grace of obvious hostility. It is the stark reminder that there are two sides of the conflict. 
And I can choose to follow the world's way or I can choose to follow God's way. And the more obvious that hostility is to me, the more clearly the battle lines are drawn. And so I'll receive that as a grace. That when I see the enemy, I know who I'm fighting. I know what team I'm on. When I see evil, I better understand righteousness. When I see hate, the hatred of life or the hatred of morality, then I know what I'm standing for. I know what side I'm on. Moses comes down from the mountain and finds them worshiping the golden calf. And after some of the turmoil that goes on there, we have that famous question where Moses declares, who is on the Lord's side? And some of the priests that were asked that question came across the line and Moses said, put your swords on and go back and kill all those who are on the other side. Because they've chosen to stand against God and it says, It might be your own tents and your own family, but they have chosen the other side. Obvious hostility is a grace to us. It shows us where our allegiance is. It shows us I'm not living for that. I'm not advancing that agenda. I don't stand for that. I stand here. By God's grace, but I stand here. And so while obvious hostility causes us suffering causes us great heartbreak when we see those we love throwing their lives away for lies. Yet it is a grace to us that reminds us the way that Jesus has called me to live is worth living. It is the right way. And so here we stand. Finally, we are helped in standing firm by the grace of abiding peace. Peace. Peace for the pilgrimage. Peace for fighting the enemy. Peace for the valley of the shadow of death. There is peace that is granted to the pilgrim in doing what he is supposed to do even though everything seems to be working against him. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You might not recognize the bookends of this letter. You do when you read it straight through, but we've had 19 sermons between the first verses and the last. But there in verse 1, we heard grace and peace be multiplied to you. And now in the closing, peace. Peace to all who are in Christ. Peace to all who are pilgrims now, exiles, because of your allegiance to Christ. Peace to all those who will be slandered, will face some opposition, some hostility, even persecution, because you're in Christ. Yours is the guarantee. It's not maybe. Yours is peace if you are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Those two words shape a magnificent conclusion to this letter. In Christ. You see, if you are not in Christ, then you should hear those words as a great invitation. An invitation to turn away from sin and self. By that I mean you're in sin because you were born in sin. Your your nature is to sin. Turn away from self because self often wants to say, I'm good enough. I'm righteous, I've done some good works. But that's, that's only self-righteousness. That's self-speaking. That's self-determining what's good for me. In Christ says you die to self. You repent of your sin, you turn away from it, and you turn to Jesus. And you say, I trust him to forgive me of all this sin I've committed against him and to give me everlasting life. In Christ is an invitation to let Jesus fix what sin has done to you. It has separated you from God and earned his judgment. Jesus unites you to God and he takes your judgment on himself. So come to Christ. If you're not a Christian, 
If you've never put faith in Jesus, Peter concludes a letter to those who are Christians, talking to them about how to live their lives. But he, he, he leaves us hanging with these two words, in Christ. To all those who are in Christ, it's a subcategory. It's not to everyone, it's to those who are in Christ. Are you? Are you in Christ? Only in Christ can you be declared righteous. Only in Christ can you be forgiven. Only in Christ can you have this peace and hope of life in heaven. But if you are in Christ, by faith, then you hear in these two concluding words a great comfort for your pilgrim journey. Because you are in Christ, you are secure in your pilgrim journey. Because you are in Christ, you have a peace that goes beyond all the turmoil and uncertainty of this momentary life. And because you are in Christ, you have God's guarantee that you will make it all the way home. So press on in this pilgrimage, not because it's always fun and easy, but because you have the true grace of God that says you will make it home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, lead us onward as pilgrims bound for heaven, refusing to stray from the path into worldliness, would you make us glad and willing strangers in this world until we reach our heavenly home? We ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus and for his glory. Amen.